Hey everybody, good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. Really, really glad you're here. Welcome those of you over in East Hall and those of you tuning in. Uh, welcome. Let me give you a couple of updates. First, uh, I have a Micah 6-8 update. Last weekend was a Micah 6-8 weekend. It's one of the ways our church seeks to be good for the world. Uh, we introduced to you a ministry that is healing brokenness somewhere in the world that desperately needs healing. And then all the giving for that weekend goes toward that ministry. And last weekend, the ministry was Restore Addiction Recovery. It's our answer to the opiate epidemic that is ravaging our community. And I always give you an update after that weekend, after a Micah 6 8 weekend, just to let you know how much was given because it's just fun. And uh, you guys last weekend gave uh, $232,000 that will be used for, yeah, thank you, be used for Restore. Uh, I love the way you guys give. I love your generosity. I love the way you catch vision like that. Uh, be praying for them. We are able to cut them a check for $232,000. Uh, but be praying for them as they break ground. Uh, be praying for the men who will seek healing in that place and pray that they will find Jesus. All right? The other update is that last weekend we had another 56 cards that were famous or infamous challenge cards that were turned in. That means at least 56 times last week we have people from our church climbing over barriers that usually separate people. Uh, racial barriers, ethnic barriers, political barriers, socioeconomic barriers. And they did it for Jesus. Right? And I've heard all kinds of stories, and it's, uh, they're great stories. I'm going to tell you this story because I heard it from Tom Randall. Uh, Tom and Karen have been in Orlando the last month, and he uh, actually had somebody give him a loge uh, or tickets for the loge at the Orlando Magic game, so he had 21 tickets to give away. And so Tom went through the highways and byways and gathered this eclectic group of people, and he still had one ticket left to give away. And when he was driving to the game, uh, right before you get to the arena, there was a homeless guy who was working the cars going to the game. And Tom called him over and said, hey, you want to go to the game with me? And so this guy said, absolutely. And Tom spent the game sitting next to a homeless guy in a loge watching the Orlando Magic game, talking about basketball and talking about Jesus. So I put a card in for Tom. So... <laughs> I love the way we're trying to change the, the lens through which we see the world. Instead of seeing differences between people as something to run away from, we want to see it as opportunities to make Jesus famous because that's our goal this year, to make much of Jesus to everyone, everywhere. So thanks. All right, this weekend we start a new series. And our series is called Only Jesus. It's eight weeks taken from the Gospel of John. It'll take us all the way to Easter. And we put together this uh, devotional guide to help you. And uh, what we wanted to do with this is to preach a, a message on a particular passage and then have the next five days in this devotional guide uh, for that particular passage so you can dive deeper in it and kind of marinate in it and let the truth go deeper in you. I think it's going to be really, really helpful. So grab one of these, use it in your own personal devotions or in your community group, but uh, I think it'll be a great tool. And what our goal is by the time we get to Easter that we will just be ready to explode in celebration uh, for Jesus, all right? So this message, this first message 
I'm calling Only Jesus Offers Joy. Only Jesus Offers Joy. And I want to look at uh, a passage that is a pretty famous story about Jesus, where Jesus turns water into wine. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 2, where the passage is going to come up on the screen, or you can look at it in your phone. John chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. This is what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water and now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Uh, this is God's word, and it's true. It's such a strange story. I mean, it just, it just strikes me as really, really a weird story. Because... Uh, Jesus turns water into wine, and not just a little bit of water into wine. If each of those stone water pots held 20 or 30 gallons, it means Jesus turned 150 gallons of water into fine wine to keep a party going. Right? And that just strikes me as something that I, I would not do. I, I wouldn't recommend anyone do that. Right? If you came to me and said, hey, I got 150 gallons of water or wine, do you want to use it for your party? Keep it going. I'd be going, ah, right? If God asked me my opinion. But I've learned over the years to not just appreciate the stories that strike me as strange or the passages that I don't understand in the Bible. I've learned to love them. Let me tell you why. There are two reasons. One is it gives me confidence that it's God that's doing this. Because in Isaiah, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. So whenever I come to a story and I think, man, I would not do that, then it gives me confidence that, yeah, God does things different than I do. And you should know that, too. If, if you're reading the Bible or praying and God never disagrees with you, you're never surprised by God, then you should be concerned. And over the years, I've noticed that a lot of people, when they pray, they're really just trying to get God to rubber stamp what they want to do. If you've noticed that in your own life. Which is why, you know, when, whenever I read a letter or an email that someone sends to me and they say, Dear Pastor Joe, I prayed about this and I feel compelled to write. That never fills me with great comfort, right? Because that person usually goes on to just blast me or blast the church. And I just don't see that that's the way it works with Jesus sitting next to the person who's writing that email going, Yeah, give it to him. Yeah, yeah, just, just you know, get it off your chest. Use strong language. Don't swear because he didn't, then he won't think it's from us, right? I, I don't think Jesus does that. I'd be much more convinced about prayer if somebody wrote me and they said, Dear Pastor Joe, I was going to blast you, but then I prayed about it, 
and Jesus told me to send you $100. Now, that's a good prayer, right? I'm off on a tangent. But, so it gives me confidence that it's God. The other reason that I like stories that strike me as strange is because if I were making it up, that's not the way I would make it up. Every Easter, I, I remind you that you have two options with the story of the resurrection. Jesus either resurrected the way the Bible says, or somebody made up those stories. Those are your two options. And the question I tell you you should be asking all the time is, is this the way I would make up the story if I had the freedom to make it up? And I would never make up a story where Jesus turned water into wine. I just wouldn't. I don't think you would either. If Jesus has the power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise people from the dead, I would not have him use even a little bit of his power, particularly in his inaugural miracle, the very first miracle to present himself to the world. I would not have him use that power to change one beverage into another beverage, change water into wine. I just wouldn't. So this strikes me as true. If it's true, and Jesus did this as his very first miracle, he must be telling us something important about himself. And I think he is. Like Jesus tells us three things in this story about himself. He tells us what, who, and how. He tells us what he came to do. He tells us who he is. And he tells us how he's going to do it. First, what he came to do. You know, this story is at a wedding. And weddings are big deals. Right? A wedding is a big deal in our culture. But in first century Palestine, it was a huge deal. Weddings were huge. because You didn't send out invitations. Everybody was invited, the whole village. The whole region would come. It was a huge deal, not just because everybody would come, it'd be the whole region, but the reception didn't just last one night like it happens here in our culture. It lasted a whole week. And so in this story, it starts out with a wedding, and then the, there's a crisis, and this is the crisis. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Okay, that's a crisis. That's a social disaster for this family. I mean, this family would never recover from that disgrace. That if they ran out of wine at the wedding celebration, then people would always look at them and oh yeah, those are the ones that ran out of wine. Because wine was connected, was integral for that celebration. Wine was always connected to joy. In fact, there were rabbis who would say, where there is no wine, there is no joy. So if they ran out of wine, it was like all the joy would be leaking out of the party. We don't know why they ran out of wine. We don't know if there's some miscalculation. We don't know why Mary had the inside track, why she had this insider information that they were just running out. There's a lot we don't know, but this is what we know. We know that Jesus came into this big group of people, and there was a shortage of wine. There was a shortage of joy. And by the time he left, there was an abundance. That's what we know. Here's a question. What's the biggest problem in the world? Uh, let me ask it a different way. If you had an abundance of joy, what would your biggest problem be? It's a hard question. Because joy, it seems like the way joy hits us in our souls, it's like we have a bucket. 
And joy goes in that bucket. And there are times where we feel full of joy and happiness. And what happens with problems, problems tend to poke holes in our bucket so that we are always running out of joy or joy is running out of us. And everybody experiences that. You may be experiencing it right now. You're at some level of joy in your soul right now. And some of you may be feeling full of joy. And some of you have different things that have happened just this past week that have drained you of joy and you feel empty and you don't feel happiness at all. And usually people have a couple different responses. They, they can blame other people for the holes they have in their bucket. They can say, the reason I don't have joy is because of her or because of him or because of this issue in my life. Some people, they blame themselves. They say, I'm not happy because I've made bad decisions. I've poked holes in my own bucket. Right? And it's my fault I don't have any happiness and joy. And there are other people who blame kind of the universe, and they say, you know what? I've got a bad bucket. <laughs> if I had his life, I'd be happy. If I had her life, I'd be happy. And Jesus comes and he says, that's not the problem. The problem's not the holes in your bucket. The problem is the source. He says, I know there's a shortage of of joy in you. I know that you are always running out of joy or joy is running out of you. But I am the solution because I am the source of abundant joy. And that's basically what Jesus says in John chapter 15. When he gathers his disciples around, he says, I tell you these things that my joy might be in you. How much joy was in Jesus? And he says that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The first thing Jesus says, what he came to do is he said, I know there's a shortage of joy in you, and I've come to be the solution. And that brings me to the who. What does this story tell us about who Jesus is? Pick up the story in verse 6. It says, now there were six stone water jars, they're for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. The master of the feast tasted the water and now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John calls this miracle a sign, and signs point to something. And this sign, he says, pointed to Jesus' glory. It manifested. That means it showed his glory. And the question is this. How does turning 150 gallons of water into fine wine to keep a party going Show us his glory. How does it tell us who Jesus is? If that seems incongruent with Jesus, if it seems un-Jesus-like to produce that amount of wine, then it may be that we misunderstand who Jesus is. And I think the clue here is in verse 8, we're introduced to a character. It said, and Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. That master of the feast is a single Greek word. It literally means the ruler of the table. It meant the the lord of the feast. And his job, the master of the feast, his job was to make the party a real party. Make the feast 
a real feast. But of course, in this story, he's not the one who makes the party a real party. He's not the one who makes the feast a real feast. It's Jesus. It's like Jesus is giving his calling card to the world in his very first miracle. And his calling card reads this, Jesus Christ, Lord of the feast, the giver of joy. Jesus has come to do a lot of things, to bring a lot of things to the world. He came to bring mercy and grace and forgiveness and peace and justice and holiness and morality and all those things. But more than anything, Jesus is taking the universe and he's bending the entire universe toward joy because the the end of all things is this irrepressible, glorious, wonderful joy. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 25, describes the end of all things like this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus comes. And he says, I know there's a shortage of joy, but I've come to have you have an experience of God's love that will shape you and fill you with joy. Jesus says, you want to know who I am? I am the Lord of the feast. I am the giver of joy. And that brings me to the how. How is he going to do this? The weirdest part of this very strange story, I think, is Jesus' interaction with his mother Mary. And this is what happens in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Isn't that weird? It seems like Mary says to Jesus, they don't have any wine, you need to do something. Jesus says, I don't want to. <laughs> and Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's like, it's like, Jesus, it's like uh, Jesus is a teenager, you know, and his mom says, I want you to do this. And he goes, I don't want to. Okay, right. I'll make water into wine. That can't be the way it works because if, God, if Jesus is God incarnate, there has to be a different explanation. And I think the key is uh, this phrase where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. That phrase is a phrase that's used several times in the Gospel of John. It's used in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17. Every time it's used, it's referring to Jesus' death. It's referring to the cross. And that makes what Jesus says to his mother even more strange. Because Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, it's not my time to die. The question is, why would Jesus say that? Jesus was 30 years old when this happened. And he was single. And he was at a wedding. 
If you're 30 years old and you're single and at a wedding, what are you thinking about? You're probably thinking at least some point during the wedding, you're thinking about whether you're ever going to get married and what your wedding will be like. And if you're not thinking about that, somebody's sure to come by your table and make you think about that, right? Because they will say, why aren't you married yet? Why haven't you found somebody special? And if Jesus is thinking about his own wedding, that means he's thinking about what John describes in the book of Revelation as the marriage supper of the Lamb, because Jesus has a bride in the story of the Bible. Jesus has a bride. By the way, it's one of the themes of the Bible. When I officiate a wedding, every once in a while I'll tell the crowd that's there that there are a lot of different images that God uses throughout the Bible to describe the kind of relationship he wants with you. He uses uh, the image of of a shepherd and a sheep. And he uses the image of a king and a servant. He uses the image of a father and a child. And every time God uses an image... He is telling you something about you and something about himself. When he says you're like a sheep, he's telling you something about you. When he says I am a shepherd, he's telling you something about him. But the dominant image from cover to cover in the Bible, when God wants to grab an image to describe the kind of relationship he wants with you, is the image of a groom pursuing his bride. Cover to cover. That's why in the Old Testament, when the people of God would run away from God, the prophets didn't just call that idolatry, they called it adultery. Because it didn't just break the law of God, it broke the heart of God. That's why Jesus will call himself the bridegroom. It's why the image of the marriage feast of the Lamb is the way all of history wraps up at a marriage feast. So if Jesus is telling you is calling himself the bridegroom and you the bride, that means he's telling you something about you. And he's telling you something about himself. My favorite moment in a wedding, when I officiate a wedding, so I'm standing next to the groom and all the bridesmaids have come in and the music changes and the doors open and the bride is seen for the first time because I will always look at the groom because I want to see it in his face. Because when he sees his bride for the first time, sometimes I'll see tears in the corner of his eyes, but I almost always see him flush and begin to smile because he, can't, he is overwhelmed by her beauty and by his love for her. You want to know how God feels about you? That's the way he feels about you. That God looks at you and he says, My love for you is beyond measure. But weddings are costly affairs. They cost a lot. But no wedding ever cost as much as Jesus' wedding because if Jesus is going to have us as his bride, if he is going to present us to himself as something that is ravishing in beauty and purity, it will cost him his life. And that's the story of the gospel. And that's why Jesus responds the way he responds to his mother. Mary says they have no wine. And if Jesus is thinking about his own wedding, he's saying, Mom, it's not my time to die. Because if I'm going to have wine at my wedding, if I'm going to ever hold my bride in my arms, I'm going to have to die. 
And that's also why Jesus does what he does. Right? He, when he tells the servants, go get water, he doesn't just say, go get some water, and I'll turn whatever water you get into wine. No, he says, you see those stone water pots over there? The ones that are used for the purification. Right? That's what he says. There, there, there were jars, these big stone jars used for purification. When it says that, it doesn't mean that they weren't used for hygiene. It wasn't like a bottle of Purell that people would you know, rub on their hands before they went to eat at the reception. That wasn't it. They would have these big jars for purification because the people knew that if they were going to worship God, if they were going to come to God, they had to be clean. They had to have something cleanse them, and that was the symbol of them being clean before God. And Jesus says, take those jars. You take that water, and I'll make that water into wine. Do you see what he's doing? See what Jesus is doing? Because later on in the Gospels, he will hold a cup up to his disciples, and it's full of wine. He says, this cup is my blood poured out for what? For your forgiveness, to make you pure, to make you clean. We're going to take communion in just a few minutes. Jesus, in his very first sign, his very first miracle, is telling us everything. He's telling us what he came to do, that he came to bring joy to people who are always experiencing a shortage of joy, every single one of us. And Jesus says, I know Joy is always running out of you or you're running out of joy. I've come to fill you up because I am the Lord of the feast and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to give myself for you. And then at the very end of the story, it actually has the essence of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to know Jesus. Because this is what it says at the end. In verses 8 through 10, it says, And Jesus said to them, Draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. They took it. The master of, feast, of the feast tasted the water and now become wine. Didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and people have drunk freely than the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus, you see what happens? Jesus does the work, and the other man gets the credit. And that's the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian doesn't mean you try to be a better person. It doesn't mean you even try to be like Jesus. To be a Christian means you go to God and you say, I am empty. I need credit for what Jesus has done. And that's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be filled with the righteousness of God. Very first miracle. Jesus tells us what he came to do. He tells us who he is. He tells us how he's going to do it. And now we get to take communion, which is a time where we remind ourselves that the Lord of the feast, the giver of joy, came for us. Only Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and I'm so grateful for who you are and what you came to do and how you accomplished that. And as we, uh, as we now share communion, I pray that you will remind us of all that you have done. 
I pray that you would fill us with the joy you came to give us. Thank you. We pray this in your blessed name. Amen.